If you have your Bibles, you can follow with us along in Exodus chapter 6, around the first nine verses in Exodus chapter 6 tonight. I want to talk about doubt, dealing with doubt. Exodus chapter 5, you deal with uh, some of those low points where God has begun to act on his behalf of his people. And Pharaoh responded negatively, and in his negative response, he increased hardship on the Israelites. And the Israelites immediately turned against Moses because of this hardship that was increased against them. And Moses, the great leader that he was, he turns to God and begins to complain because God hasn't done what God promised to do. And so chapter five was rather discouraging in the terms of the faithfulness and the faith of God's people. Now, you would think that if that was the case in chapter five, that you could turn into chapter six and you would find uh, another story. But the case is you actually, when you open chapter six, you find the same song, just a second verse. There is more faithlessness. There's more disbelief. There's more doubt. There's more moaning and crying against God in chapter 6. Yet in the midst of this, there's a statement that God makes that is crucial. And I want to point out in understanding a couple of things. First, it's crucial in understanding why Israel and Moses are wrong in groaning against God. And secondly, it's crucial to understand how it is that God is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do and why God is going to do exactly what he said he would do. Now, the fact of the matter is, unless we get on our high horse, what we see in Israel and in Moses in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 is the exact same thing that we see in ourselves in our everyday life. And I wish somebody could just say amen right there. We do the same thing over and over, time and time again, there's a promise that we believe. There is a truth to which we hold. And there is a way that we believe that God ought to do what he's promised to do. And then God doesn't do what we think God ought to do. And so two things happen from that. Number one, we shake our fist at God. And because he didn't do what we think he ought to do. And secondly, is we act as though God has forgotten how to take care of his own personal business, which is us, me and you. It's one thing for us to be upset because I had an expectation and things didn't happen. And according to my expectation, it's another thing to say, God, you have sinned against me. That's a whole different ballgame. So, which essentially is what we say when we confront God like that. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. You are wrong. You owed me something, and you didn't give me what you owed me. There was a way to do this. There was a best way to do this, and I know what the best way was to get this done, and you did not do this. And the best way to get this done, God, how dare you? That's what we do. Oftentimes, well, I know we say we don't speak to God like that. Well, probably not openly, you don't. But in your mind, you do. But that's exactly what Israel is saying to God here in Exodus. And it's exactly what we have a tendency to say to God in the midst of our frustrations. You know, 
if we remember this statement, I believe it'll help turn us away from that tendency and towards something that is more true. First, read this passage when you look at the scripture and its entirety. Look, and uh, then we'll look at it and dissect it more carefully. But matter of fact, go back to the last. Uh, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Evil. I mean, Moses accused God of evil. Why have you done evil to these people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Listen to the way he's talking to the Lord. Lord God, you did evil. How did God do evil? By allowing Pharaoh to do evil. So now God is being blamed for the evil that Pharaoh has done. Never mind the fact that God said, hey, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And oh, by the way, he's going to harden his heart. And he's not going to do what you tell him to do. We forget that part. Now it happens exactly the way that God said it was going to happen. And Moses said, you've done evil. Chapter 6 and verse 1. Listen to this. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Listen, that's amazing. That's powerful. And and it's grace and it's kindness and it's mercy. I remember when I was a kid and my mom and my dad uh let's see how do you how do you want to how do we say this my mom and dad didn't play you know we come up we 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 understood what it meant to have a hickory switch or to be uh have things you know being being uh spanked or something like that but i remember in, in a grocery store one time and i remember hearing a child say something to their parent in the grocery store and they threw something down in the store i don't remember how old i was i was probably six maybe seven I don't know, maybe eight years old or so, but I remember this, and I remember that when it happened, and I remember that when the kid uh, in the store yelled at their mother and said whatever it was, and he threw that thing down on the ground, and I literally ducked because the first thought was, in any case, his mama is just like my mama. We knew there was something coming. I thought to myself, if I had done what he just did, I wouldn't even make it out of the store. (laughs) Now, of course, I'm kidding. But the truth is, is that that's the way we do God. When I read the end of chapter 5 of Exodus and the way that Moses spoke to God, the creator, something in me just wants to duck. I'm like, Moses, what are you thinking? Do you ever feel that way? I mean, I read that and I just go, I couldn't imagine having the audacity and the unmitigated gall to say what Moses says to God at the end of chapter 5. He's in trouble. That's my thought. And in chapter 6 begins, and God doesn't strike him dead, doesn't kill him over. He doesn't even put put leprosy on him or doesn't put anything on him to punish him. He doesn't even get from God what he got earlier when the circumcision passage where, you know, here it is, we're trying to figure it out, who it is that's about to die, you know, who it is that God is, is coming against about to kill them. And, but in chapter 6, that doesn't happen. 
Instead, God moves right along and he makes a statement. This is the prologue to the statement. And the prologue is this. You have to understand. Oh, you're about to see what I'm going to do. After the prologue, he makes a statement. And this statement beginning in verse 2. Listen to this. And God spoke to Moses and said unto him, I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, And with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Wow. Who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession by because I am Yahweh. Listen, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. And then here it is, listen. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Wow. Think about this. Think about this for a moment. There it is. There it is. I want you to understand and understand something from this text. Come on. I want you to see a picture of where all doubt comes from and how you overcome it. We know where it comes from, but how do we overcome it? And that, that's how we see this text. This is a picture of the human condition. This is the picture of why we doubt. And we know where the doubt comes from because we know that God's antidote to the doubt. And we'll see that here sh- shortly. But after this opening statement, there are a couple of things that, you know, first of all, you have to see that with doubt, you forget who the Lord is, which is why God begins by reminding Moses and in Israel of who he really is. Look at verse two and three. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I, am, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. As God Almighty or El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Listen, here's this is an important statement. It's complicated, but it's important. You have to understand. But there's a triple reference here in this passage of scripture when you look at verses two through nine. Three times the Lord says, I am Yahweh. It frames his statement first before his statement to Moses. He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And secondly, before the statement that Moses is supposed to make to Israel, he says, I am Yahweh. And at the end of that statement, he says, I am Yahweh. 
Three times the Lord says, I am Yahweh. That's significant. The fact that three times he introduces himself and he uses this particular name for himself. However, there's something that's a little confusing about the revelation of this name. Because he says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty or El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This is a problem. Why is that a problem? Because number one, that name is used a hundred times in Genesis. So how is it that God is saying, I didn't make myself known by that name when the name is used a hundred times in Genesis? Surely he made himself known by that name. If it's used a hundred times, you'd think they'd know that. Not only is it used a hundred times in Genesis, but it's used by and with the patriarchs. It's used with Abraham, for example. God's statement here is puzzling somewhat because the previous biblical text speak clearly of Abraham's knowledge of the name Yahweh. Abraham uses the name himself in Genesis 15, 2 and 8. And Yahweh declares it to Abraham in Genesis 15 and 7 where he uses the same phrase, I am Yahweh. So what does God mean when he says to Moses, I did not reveal myself by this name to your forefathers? Because it seems like he did reveal himself by this name to the forefathers. Here's two ways to solve this problem. One way of solving this problem, and I believe it's problematic, is what's called the doc documentary hypothesis. You've probably heard of, you know, JEPD theory and so forth and so on. But there are multiple authors or authors of the Pentateuch, and 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 there's uh, multiple, multiple communities that came together to write the Pentateuch. And you can tell who they are by the way that they refer to God and so forth and so on. And so the argument goes that when this was being written by later communities, whoever it was that wrote Genesis, so whatever it was that actually got together and wrote Genesis, this name had already been revealed to them when they went back and wrote Genesis. And so, therefore, there's this little hiccup or contradiction when God says, here's where the name was revealed, which is true. It wasn't revealed to the Exodus, but they went back to the Genesis account when they wrote it and just added that name. That's one way to look at it. That's problematic, though. Why? Because the Bible says Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and I believe Moses wrote it. That's in the story. That's my theory. Not a group of not individuals, not, not communities. I believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch, period. He's the author of it. I believe that with everything in me. So what do you do with this apparent contradiction? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so listen to the way that this question is answered. Nor does God by his name in this passage mean syllables or letters but the knowledge of his glory and majesty which shone out more fully and more brightly in the redemption of his church than in the commencement of the covenant. For Abraham and the other patriarchs were content with a smaller measure of light, whence it follows that the fault of their descendants would be less excusable in their faith. I'm sorry, if their faith was not answerable, to the increase of their grace. Meanwhile, Moses is awakened to activity while God is setting before him a magnificent and beautiful singular means of showing his glory.
Think about this. They knew the word Yahweh. They knew how to, they knew how to pronounce it, but they didn't understand the meaning of Yahweh. Wow. They knew that God said, I'm Yahweh. Had no idea what was significant about this name, Yahweh. It was only when God revealed himself specifically and theologically to Moses and explained why this name in particular was significant for him that Moses had a more forward understanding of this term, Yahweh. Listen to Gasado, what he relates in, in defining this name. This name means he was with he who's with his creatures and he who is constantly the same. That is, he is true to his word and fulfills his promises. That's what this name means. I am Yahweh and my actions shall be in keeping with my name. A similar interpretation attaches to the phrase, I am Yahweh, wherever it occurs in the Bible. It comes to link the statute or the promise with the attributes of God implied in the name Yahweh. The attributes of one who sees to it that the moral law is observed and fulfills without, with absolute faithfulness when he promises or what he announces before, uh, before him by his prophets. So in other words, that name Yahweh means I am the God who keeps my covenant. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't really understand that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob don't know who God is. They know nothing about God. God reveals himself to them and he says, I am God. He establishes a covenant with them and he makes a promise to them. They don't really understand, however, that his very name means every promise I make that I keep. His very name means I am the one that you can count on because every promise that I make, I keep. His very name is a reflection of the very character as the covenant keeping God. You see, God wasn't saying, here's the way that you sort of keep me in line as opposed to the other gods. God was saying, I am God and there is no other God before me, beside me or around me. And my character is such that my very name evokes the righteousness of my moral law. Abraham didn't comprehend that the way that Moses would come to comprehend that. And that's what God means when he says, by this name, I didn't make myself known to them. They didn't comprehend this name. And there's a reason that they would not have comprehended this name in Genesis, the way it was comprehended in Exodus. There's a reason for that because ultimately this covenant is about deliverance. Listen, this is part one of a couple of a couple of sermons I'm going to put together, series I'm putting together here on this podcast. I'm going to try to put together another one for next week and upload it on Tuesday night. Hopefully you'll get a chance to join us again. I'm going to try to keep these around 20 minutes long or so and put these together. And you can listen to them in, the, in their entirety if you'd like uh, once they all get uploaded. But I'm looking at doing probably two more parts on this one, maybe one and a half more parts or something. We'll see how this goes. But thank you for joining this podcast tonight, The Tipping Point. Please share this with your friends and know that God is for you, not against you. Listen, anytime we're dealing with doubt, we got to understand and know that God is faithful. His name means he is a God that will fulfill his promises. Be blessed today in the fear and the faith of the Lord. I love you. God bless you. Lord's willing, we will see you next week. Thank you so much.
Hello, and thank you for joining The Tipping Point. I'm your host, Johnny Tipton, and we want to say we thank you for getting on, sharing the podcast. Um, we appreciate all of those who have made comments, who've contacted us and let us know that they're enjoying the podcast, give us recommendations for other uh, t- uh, topics down the road. We'll look at doing some of those. So if you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd be interested and like to know what you think about the podcast and uh, what, maybe what suggestions you have going down the road. I want to recap the podcast we've been talking about, about uh, don't doubt the promises of God. Don't doubt the promises of God. The very name, we've, we talked last last time about the very name of God itself holds the promises that we have been given, and the very name itself is, is a stable foundation of which we should live and, and thrive in our being and the whole nine yards. So just to recap, we, we talked about how the, the, that God had revealed himself through the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then even into Moses, how that uh, that God revealed to Moses uh, some different areas of even his life and things of how he was he would uh, reveal himself in different aspects of Moses to Moses um, in different ways um, that that he did not reveal himself to to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how that the the name is constantly uh, the name is constantly progressing, the name is constantly gr- growing through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. God is constantly revealing. His name to a generation of people. I personally believe that God has always, since the beginning of time, wanted to reveal Himself to humanity. The problem is, is that humanity is carnal. Of course, and the Bible says, the Scripture we know it says that the carnal is the enmity of God, and so. Uh, to look at God, to know God, to not just know the name, how to spell the name, how the name progressed from the book, the name of Yahweh in the book of Genesis all the way to the name of Jesus in the New Testament. And so we, we it's sort of kind of like I was thinking about this earlier this week. It's sort of like a child who grows up in a Christian home and and they hear the name Jesus and and and, and they they grow up in this home and they're catechized and they go to church and they hear the songs about Jesus and Jesus, 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 and they like the name Jesus and they come to love the name Jesus. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. You know, we, we know the song, Jesus loves me. We all know the song, the Bible tells me so. They sing those songs about Jesus and they learn those truths about Jesus. And yet, uh, if we're not careful, we have to understand that one day their faith is no longer borrowed. That's the truth we have to understand. Their faith is no longer secondhand. Their faith is no longer their parents' faith, but their faith is their own faith. And they come to know Jesus and not just the name of Jesus. His name should be called Jesus. Why? Because he'll save his people. It's not until you become one of the saved people that you really understand his name. And basically what God is saying is that when you think about this, he's saying to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and he's saying, compared to you, Moses, and compared to what I've revealed to you and will continue to reveal to you, compared to you, their children who grew up in a house saying the name that they did not really comprehend. But when it comes to you, however, what I do when I'm going to do it in you, with you, and through you, and for Israel, you will know and understand my name in a way that they never could. That's just how powerful the name of God. And that's what God is wanting to reveal. He's wanting to reveal himself. So that's what he means. They use the name, but you know the name. You know, 
so when you look at this, not only do we doubt because we do, we doubt, we doubt when we doubt when we forget who God is. We doubt when we somehow uh, don't understand that just by His very nature, God is the one who keeps His promises. We doubt when we forget the fact that by His very nature, God is sovereign. God's in control. Ultimately, that's what doubt is. Is it not that somehow we believe there's an area that's fallen through the cracks? Somehow we believe there's an area that's escaped God's view or that something that has slipped between his fingers or somehow he has forgotten us or somehow he's lied about to us. And the only way that we can doubt like that is if we forget who God is. When you know who he is, you know that he does not forget things. He don't slumber. He don't sleep. Understand that God is never late. He's always on time every time. And when you understand who he is, there's no room for doubt. But beyond knowing who he is, we also doubt because we forget what God has done. We're, we've taken our, our text from Exodus chapter 6, and when you look at verses 4 and 5, they allude to this. He says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived in sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of people of Israel whom Egyptians hold as slaves and have remembered my covenant. First, God is reminding Moses of their first meeting. <laughs> that ought to sound familiar to us, really. When God first encountered Moses, he says the same exact words. I've seen, I've heard, I've remembered, I've cut, I've cut my word. I've said these same things. So God is reminding Moses of what he's done. Secondly, God is reminding Moses and Israel both of his covenant. It's amazing when we talk about covenant, but there are two things that are associated with the idea of covenant, and that is the concept of revelation and the concept of redemption. When you think about that, those are powerful things. And, and so you, when you come to understand the, to know God, you have to know, you, you, you can't just know God. You have to find out who he is, and he wants to reveal, reveal himself to you. But you can't know God until he reveals himself to you. Sure, we think about this. We know the heavens declare the glory of God, and we look at the heavens, we look at the world, and it says there is a creator, and you're without excuse. We know that. However, you don't know who he is. You don't know his name unless he condescends to you and reveals himself. And the covenant is the means by which God reveals himself. So when he reminds Moses of this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he's saying is, I revealed myself to these guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in ways that I did not reveal myself to the rest of the world. Think about that. Not everyone has access to the same revelation. But God reveals himself uniquely to his covenant people. And so first and foremost, He's reminding him of the fact that God revealed himself. And secondly, there's this idea of redemption. You know, covenant means redemption. God chose Abraham. He didn't choose the rest of the world. God redeemed Abraham. There are other individuals that could have been redeemed by God for this purpose, but they weren't. Abraham was. Understand, God turned a barren couple into parents. God did that for his purpose of redemption. He also turned a man into a nation. God did that for his own purpose in redemption. And God turned that nation's time of need into their time of deliverance. Wow. God does that for Israel. And he reminds Moses of that. But listen to this. God also rebukes Moses of Israel for their doubt. And they need to be rebuked for their doubt. 
How does he rebuke them? He simply reminds them of who he is. You've forgotten who I am, Moses and Israel. He says, Israel says, you've made it hard for us. What's wrong with you? You came and you spoke to Pharaoh and now all of a sudden things are harder for us. Moses turns to God and says, why have you done evil against these people? Understand that they're in a, they're in a bad place. And Moses is, 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 is mad too. Moses is upset too. When you think about this and when you think about, uh, Moses is, is telling them you've, you've turned this into evil. And so God is saying, hold on a second. First of all, I'm God. You seem to have forgotten that, but I'm going to let that one slide. Secondly, I am the God who made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Thirdly, I'm the God who promised something to these people. And fourthly, I'm the God who remembered my covenant and came and got you so that my people could be delivered. Or have you forgotten while we even started this conversation in the first place? Woo. That's a nice gentle rebuke. Huh. Of course, it's better than the last one. This one, this is one of those rebukes where at the end of it, you kind of go, mm, I just got rebuked. I don't know what happened, but yeah, I, that was a nice little gentle rebuke. Yes, you did. You got rebuked. You see, the truth is God doesn't owe us anything, not one single thing. And yet he's revealed himself to us time after time. And he has redeemed us time after time. And he's in the process of redeeming us, regardless of what it is that we're experiencing. So here we go. We doubt because we don't believe what the Lord has promised. Look at verses six to eight. You get a chance. You can read it later if you want to. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Man, here he is again. He's confirming who he is. I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out. This is framed by I am the Lord on the from the beginning and the end. So he's going back to remind them of who I am, that I'm God. By the way, there's no other explanation needed than I am God. If you'll agree with that, say amen. That's kind of like when your parents tell you something, you go, well, why do I have to do that? You know, we always get the answer because I told you so. Why do I have to do what you told me? Well, because I'm your daddy, right? That's what we always say. Well, we give that argument. That's not enough. That's our human nature. That is enough. He says it simply. He says, I am the Lord. That is enough. That should be enough for us. He said it's at the beginning and the end, but in the middle, in the middle. Remember, three times he says, I'm the Lord. And in the middle of that, seven promises. Another very important number in scriptures. Woo. Think about that. Look at those promises. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. What is there to worry about? You spoke to Pharaoh and our burden got heavier. I'm God, he says. I will bring you out from under the burden of Egyptians. Number two, think about this. I will deliver you from slavery to them. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Number four, I will take you to be my people. Here we go. Number five, I will be your God and you should know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. When I do it, you'll know I did it. Number six, moving on. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And number seven, I will give it to you for a possession. I'm not just going to bring you out. I'm going to bring you in. That's what he says. I'm not just going to bring you out, I'm going to bring you in, but I'm going to bring you out, take you as my own, be your 
God uniquely, specifically designed for you. And then I'm going to bring you back at this land that I promised. And how does he end it? He says, I am Yahweh. Hmm. Something to think about. So why do we doubt? Why, why do we doubt? Because we forget who God is. Because if we remembered who God was, there'd be no room for doubt. Think about that just for a moment. We doubt because we forget what God has done. Because we, if we remembered God's covenant, if we remembered God's redemption, again, where would there be room for doubt? And then to move on, again, we do. We forget what God has promised. We forget that, that, that God is not done with us. We forget that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and that there is more ahead of us. But the fact is we forget that he's coming again, the judge, the living and the dead, and he's going to make all things right. We forget those things. That's why we doubt because we forget that. Wow. But lest we be flipping. Oh, yeah, think about it. All you got to do is add those facts. Look at what happens because they get those facts. And, and they don't get those facts. They, they get those facts from God. God says to Moses, he says, I am the Lord. And you're going to know me better than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me. I'm revealing myself and my character to you in ways that only they couldn't even fathom. They couldn't comprehend. I'm God. You need to know me as God and you won't doubt. Again, you need to remember, remember what I've done. Remember the covenant. I'm the God who made the covenant. I'm the one that came and got you. You didn't come and get me. I came and got you. You were tending sheep on the other side of the mountain. I came to get you. I made the bush burn. I got your attention. You didn't get mine. Think about that. When you think about those things, he says, thirdly, tell the people this is what I'm going to do. And Moses comes down armed with the word of God. And armed with the word of God, the prophet of God speaks to the people of God this powerful word, reminding them of who God is and what he's done and what he's promised. And the people of God respond. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and hard slavery. Mm. Think about that. God spoke directly to Moses. Moses brought that word to the people. Yeah. That's how powerful he was. But because of their broken spirit and because of their circumstances, they wouldn't even believe what Moses said. That's, that's, that's crazy. But that's how we are as well. This is where it gets real. That is a heavy burden. This is real. Your promise is not real right now, Moses. Pharaoh, guess what? He's right behind you. He's on your heels. He's real. Your God is not real now, Moses. Think about that. Your God says he's going to do ABC and XYZ. Pharaoh did what he was going to do. We got no straw, man. This is real. That's pie in the sky stuff. This is real. My pain is real. My heartache is real. My circumstances are real. My frustration is real. My fear is real. And right now, it's more real to me than who you say God is and what you say God has done and what you say God has promised. That's you and me. That's where the rubber meets the road, if you really think about it. That's where people are right now today. That's the real deal Christian life. That's us. 
And because we don't understand that this is the real Christian life, here's what happens. We get to the place where we think something wrong is wrong with us. And so there's something wrong with me. And so if there wasn't something wrong with me, I wouldn't respond this way. Listen, the same thing is wrong with you that was wrong with them. You're fallen. And you're living in this world of difficult circumstances, information and rebuke. That's that's not enough. We need information. We know that. Granted, we need rebuke, but that's not enough. We need the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. And we need Him to act mercifully. And we also need to be reminded, listen, understand this. Israel would have to hear this same thing again and again and again, over and over again and again. Listen, people, don't think so much of yourself that you get frustrated because you have to be reminded that's arrogance. That's exactly what that is. What's the matter with my brothers and sisters? Oh, I'm just down. Why are you down, brother and sister? Well, because something happened in my life and I doubt it again. Really? Come on. Because Christians doubt things, yes, but I should be more mature than that by now. I should be at a place in my life where I stop right now. Are you saying to a Christian that you should be at a place in your life where you don't need to be reminded again and again and over and over? And again, don't say that. Read some things. Understand, look, look at this, Romans 15, 15. Listen to this. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. 1 Corinthians 4, 17. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, which you stand. 2 Corinthians 10 and 7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. 2 Peter 1, 12 and 13. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. 2 Peter 3. Go back to 12, 13. Remind these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Now go Second Peter 3 and 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And watch this over in the book of Jude, Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Reminder, 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 over and over and over again. Why do we need to sit under the ordinary means of grace every week in church? Why? Because we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. Why do we need to be reminded of the gospel? Because we forget faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Why do we need to read the word regularly? Why do we pray the word regularly, sing the word regularly? Why do we need to come before the Lord's table week in and week out? 
because we need to be reminded again and again and again and over and over because the yoke of your oppression is a constant reminder and you need the word of God as a constant reminder because the difficulties that you face every day as a reminder, as you need the word of God as a reminder, the harness of life is a reminder. The hardness of life is a reminder. So you need the preaching of the gospel as a reminder. The disappointment of your sinful nature and your sinful flesh is a reminder. So you need the majesty of Christ put forth before you again and again and over and over and over, time after time, as a reminder. Christianity is not a class you take and pass. It's your life. It's your breath. It's your health. It's your strength. It's your everything. And you must be reminded over and over again. There's nothing wrong with being reminded. Understand, in the name of Jesus encompasses the power, the presence, the promises. Everything that encompasses the kingdom of God is in that name, Jesus. There's healing in the name Jesus. There's deliverance in the name Jesus. There's salvation in the name Jesus. Understand, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with being reminded over and over, time and time again, because sometimes we just need that. We just need that. I hope tonight that you're blessed. Today, you're hearing this podcast uh, here at the Tipping Point. Again, my name is Johnny Tipton. I've been your host for this podcast. This is going to be the last one on this little series about the promises of God. I appreciate you so much for your time and for your feedback on these Feel free to give us a, a, a like, a share, whatever you'd like to do. Uh, let us know you're listening. We appreciate you so much. Have a blessed night and hopefully see you next week. God bless you.